Welcome to the Exodus Cry podcast. We are live and uh, we're really excited about our podcast today because we have a very special guest joining us uh, via cell phone, um, our good friend, uh, Rebecca Bender. She is a board member of Exodus Cry and a major leader in the anti-trafficking movement. Um, her voice is has been so valuable for us at Exodus Cry, and I know in many uh, circles around the nation um, of different uh, groups that are fighting trafficking. Um, she brings the perspective of a survivor as well as a whole bunch of other insight and um, so we're just uh, so thrilled, Rebecca, to have you join us on our podcast this afternoon. How are you? Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I'm <laughs> I'm doing great, and I just you know love so much about you guys do there at Exodus Cry. That I'm honored to be a part. I got to hear your story for the first time a few years ago, and we were traveling uh, around the nation, and we were mainly doing interviews with um, sex buyers. And somehow through that course of time, we landed a, a couple of interviews with um, sex trafficking survivors. They happened to fall on back-to-back -back days in two different states. And um, unbeknownst to me at the time, their stories were very similar in terms of the main points of their stories. And so when I met with you, Rebecca, that time and we did that interview, it was uh, so moving. I, I would go so far as to call it life-changing um, in my own personal journey in this. And uh, I remember one of our crew members actually excusing himself during the interview because he was just so moved um, by your testimony. And um, But we were just uh, blown away by the insights that you shared with us, by um, the personal aspects of, of your sh story and, and your willingness to share those things with us. And, and, um, and so out of that, that interview, we forged a friendship now over these last years. And, and I remember when we were having lunch together during one of the abolition summits and he said, you know, do you have any survivors on your board at Exodus Cry? And I said, <laughs> ashamedly, I said, uh, no. And he said, you should have one. And I said, will you be a board member? And you said, yes. <laughs> that was well, awesome. You, it's, it's, all, it's, it's moving to hear that one of your team members was um, so moved by the testimony. You never you never know, right? Kind of what yeah. impact you just sharing what you've been through will have on people but um i think i also push to be like you need a brunette on your <laughs> mm, like on your staff in general you need right? a brunette on your board <laughs> but so all i just want to say thank you people. thank you yeah. for for uh your leadership on our board at exodus cry it's been uh, so formative for us and the, just the perspective and the insight that you hold and um the things that you've been able to speak into for us um on multiple levels has been super helpful, but I want to go back to that interview and, um, and, and bring some of our, um, listeners into a lot of the narrative that you shared with me on that day, because like I said, it was so eye opening and, um, life changing in many ways and, and formative in my understanding of this whole issue. Um, 
But the first thing is, is I remember, I remember going into sitting down with you that first time and, uh, and, you know, in our, the course of our travels, just going from interview to interview to interview, didn't have a lot of time to prepare or anything like that. Really didn't even know who you were because our production manager one production manager was the one who were, who was setting up all of these interviews. And, um, but I think I had kind of a, a subconscious idea of what, prostitution in Las Vegas looked like just based on honestly a lot of the the myths that are out there and the, mm -hmm. the mo one of the most prominent ones being that Vegas is this place where the prostitution that happens there is among the elite high-class escorts who are working autonomously independently they're empowered and and making money and you know they're they're that version of of prostitution is kind of embodied in the, in the reality of prostitution in Vegas. And, and through your story, I, I mean, it was, it just literally, it just completely transformed my whole understanding. And, and every time I've been back to Vegas since I just, I can't be there in the same way. Um, but maybe in starting out, could you just share a little bit of your story and then maybe even speak into the system of prostitution in Vegas uh, you spent six years in prostitution in Vegas. If you could help us understand how that system of prostitution operates and um, what, you know, we, what our audience might think they know that they don't know, <laughs> like I was. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, it's, it's so, there's so much, right? So I'm just trying to wrap my kind of brain around where to begin. <laughs> that was a really broad question. <laughs> yeah. There's so much in there. I mean, even just the, just remembering uh, we did the interview when we, you and I first met about three and a half years ago, because I was about six months pregnant with my now three-year-old. And there's just even so much that I've learned, even within the last three and a half years, right? That uh -huh. sometimes I wish we could go back and redo some, because there's so much more uh -huh. now that even I understand, not oh, just wow. from my own, my own story and my own awareness, but now working with, I've worked with hundreds of victims in the last three years. And wow. I mean, we, and so to just be able to see more layers of yeah. coercive tactics that traffickers employ or yeah. having to talk with women who were forced into prostitution in Vegas, but also never identified because they were never beaten. Right. And be able to explain mm. to them, but you were defrauded and coerced and you complied so you never got to the point where he had to physically abuse you. That doesn't make it any less the face of trafficking. It just right. makes it that you complied before he had to get go that far. And right. I think helping all of us, not just the trafficked victims that we work with, but helping kind of culture as a whole really start to understand what does trafficking look like in the very community that I live in? Right? If I don't live in Cambodia, Nigeria, you know, wherever it just, it looks so different based on where you live and really starting to work through that so much in the last three years. And, um, I know Polaris came out with a list of 25 different ways that human trafficking exists within our world. And oh, that's so interesting. Really, yeah. To dig through the 25. And for those of us that are leaders in the movement, like, do we know what those are and can we easily articulate it? Right. <laughs> Probably not, you know, not most of us. And so, right. yeah, just kind of fascinating to kind of wrap to... your mind about. It's important to understand the unique nuances of trafficking and the form and the shape that it takes based on different cultures, environments, cities. And then, but then also, I think to, to see the similarities that are there as well, that link together 
um, this thread of, of prostitution around the world. Um, yeah, so great. Can you um, maybe just because uh, I think probably most of our viewers have or listeners have not heard your story. Could you kind of give us a just a like just a bullet point synopsis so we can of your story so they can have kind of a familiarity with with who you are and 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 then and then maybe we can pull apart and dig into some of the more specific issues pertaining to trafficking and how it functions and operates in Vegas. Is that a do you think that would be yeah. a good place to start? Okay, cool. Sure. So I was born and raised in a small town in Southern Oregon, um, just an all-American kind of average middle-class kid. My, I was an only child. My dad worked a local lumber mill, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. She taught aerobics on the side. And when I was nine, my parents divorced, and my mom moved us into a little bit of a bigger city. My first town was only like 8,000 people, and the big city that my mom moved us to was 35,000 people, so still pretty small. <laughs> um, my dad started drinking after the divorce, um, and so I, I didn't get to see him a lot during visitation. Sometimes he wouldn't show, or sometimes he would drop me off at my grandma's instead of, of taking me. And and now my mom is a single mom. She's working two jobs to make ends meet, and she was dating, and and so there was this time in my life where I felt uh, pretty vulnerable and I felt unimportant and unwanted. Um, I remember that term, a latchkey kid, where my mom would rent a house or an apartment next to the school that I was going to so I could walk myself to and from school, mm. walk myself to and from practice. And even though I had those couple years of, of a very small amount of trauma, um, I still became a a real gregarious, outspoken, you know, kind of fun, popular young woman in middle school and into high school. I was a varsity athlete. I was an honor roll student. I graduated with enough credits my junior year, and I was accepted into Oregon State University. Oh. I'd been assigned my dorm room and, you know, just would have never been put in that at-risk youth category that I think we imagine trafficked victims all a part of. And and rightfully so, because the majority of traffic victims do come from, uh, you know, a childhood of abuse and foster care and, you know, sexual abuse. And, and so that is the rightful place that we're looking. But in my story, I was, I was the other smaller percent that did come um, from a normal middle class home. Wasn't, doesn't mean that there weren't vulnerabilities, right? My dad's alcoholism, he, you know, he would get angry. Sometimes he'd throw things against the wall, but he never hurt my mom or me. Um, so there was still... The, I think that there's different layers of vulnerabilities, right? And it looks different based on every person's childhood. Um, but when I went off, uh, the summer between going from high school off to college, I got pregnant and I had to make a decision at 17, whether I was going to keep my daughter and unenroll from university and stay in my small town and kind of become a teen statistic or get an abortion and go off to school with my friends and pretend mm. that nothing happened. Mm. And I chose to keep my daughter. I chose life, and I'm really glad I did. Mm. She's an amazing young woman today, and um, amazing. She's also what kept me kind of fighting for my life. I think mm. <laughs> throughout the rest of my story, but from there, half mm. of my friends had gone off to one university, U of O, and the other half had gone off to OSU. We kind of have a civil war here in Oregon. We have these two universities, and my friends who had gone off to the U of O moved out of their dorm room after their freshman year and moved into an apartment. And during that year I had had my daughter and it was enrolled in community college, living at home with my mom and my now stepdad. 
And after that, when my friends moved into the apartment, they called and said, hey, Rebecca, we've got an extra room in our apartment. You should move on up and um, you and the baby. And so I thought this is my opportunity to get out of the small town and experience college life and, and culture and adventure. And so, of course, I, I moved up there. And it was on campus that I started having those same feelings of being unimportant because now I was kind of the girl with the kid on campus. And I didn't have the support of my family to be able to have anyone watch the baby to go enjoy college life, right? Go off to parties or football games or, you know, anything that college is, mm-hmm. college, you know, life at all. And so those same old feelings of feeling unimportant and unwanted surfaced mm. um, until I met the most, uh, you know, charming man. <laughs> this guy was about 20, about 24 when I was 18, almost 19. Um, he was funny and drove a really nice car and he was very attractive, very charming. Um, and more importantly, he really took an interest in, in me and my daughter. It didn't matter to him that I had a kid, which it, did, it had mattered to other college guys. And so that was a real hook for me. Um, everything that we did, all the dating and would kind of center around her. We do Chuck E. Cheese and the park and a lot of just different, you know, like family activities and I, I started wanting that family for her that I had wanted as a young nine-year-old girl without, you know, with divorced parents. And, and after six months of dating me, he invited me to move in with him. I thought I had met the one. He told me his job was relocating him to Las Vegas. So we moved together to Las Vegas. And the day that I arrived, um, he told me to leave my baby with his brother and to get dressed up, that he wanted to take me out and show me Vegas and that night, he drove me to an escort service um, where he physically uh, slapped me across the face and forced me into escorting, forced me into f- prostitution that night. Mm-hmm. Wow. Thank you for just, I know how many times you've, <laughs> you've shared your story, and <laughs> I really appreciate you uh, opening up about your story here with us. Um, I think it's, you know, Lila and I have spent a lot of time talking about prostitution in terms of concepts and things like that. Um, it really brings it home to hear someone like yourself, uh, really share your own personal life experiences and those underlying conditions and vulnerabilities that led you into, into a situation and a position of being coerced and ultimately forced into prostitution the thing when i remember you know when we when i first interviewed you and you shared that with me i I had such a hard time wrapping my mind around what had gone on and i and i and so i was like so how much money did you bring home that first night i can't remember you said you know several thousand dollars whatever and i said okay and how much of that did you keep for yourself and you said uh none of it (laughs) and i was like wait a minute here, this isn't adding up. And, and I said, well, how much did you make in a year? And you said, you know, however much, hundreds of thousands, I think it was a million dollars or something. And I said, well, how much of that did you keep? And you said, none, zero. Like, and so uh, you were helping to deliver me from my naivety related to <laughs> just this notion of prostitution that I had in Las Vegas. And so yeah. um, I think a lot of people are coming from that perspective of seeing Vegas as the place of showgirls, of the place of 
you know, I mean, you can't go to Vegas and not see the sex industry. It's just plastered over everything. Literally, it's plastered oh, over yeah, it's cars liter- and liter- littered throughout the streets. <laughs> and, and we're all meant to understand that this is, these are free agents working independently and autonomously. But that wasn't your, that wasn't the case for you. You had very much been manipulated and coerced into this position. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, now even if you were to ask me some of those questions and, and what we try to teach survivors now that we run an online academy for survivors, right, is, is that when when someone would ask me now, how much did you make, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even say that I made anything, <laughs> like, okay. right? I, I didn't make right. any money. I, he used me to make money. He made money right. off of me, his product, but I didn't personally get to make any money. Like, how much did I make in a night? Nothing. How much did he make in a night would be different. You know what I'm saying? And I think really constructing the verbiage. And this is even what we do. And, you know, now I get to work. I'm really thankful that I work with law enforcement in different cases kind of all over the country. And um, when I'm working with victims as they're preparing for trial, I mean, for us, it's really important instead of them saying, and then I sold myself in Vegas. It was like, but, but you didn't, (laughs) he defrauded Mm. you at point of recruitment and he forced you at point of destination. That is, you didn't sell yourself. Then you arrived in Vegas and he sold you. But Mm. like just getting that word I out of your own mind, because it's been brainwashed and branded in your mind for so long. It's like, that's the first part we really work on is them being able to say, it wasn't my fault. I'm not stupid. I'm not naive. I'm not Mm. like I was tricked and it's okay to mm. put some responsibility on the perpetrator at this point. You know what I mean? Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Rebecca, it's so powerful and interesting to hear you talk about your journey into prostitution as someone who you feel on the spectrum of vulnerabilities was kind of on the lower end compared to some of the others, um, other people out there who point. ended up in prostitution. But at the same time, the pull of your trafficker and the way that he really manipulated your emotions was so mm-hmm. strong that even though you know you were on the lower end of that spectrum, you still ended up where you ended up. And it just it kind of just goes to show that you know there are two sides. There's that push factor of the vulnerabilities, like we have talked about in previous podcast episodes. But there's the pull of the pimp, the the lover boy, the trafficker that is also so calculated and so strong. And just to see how that really played out in your own journey, it's it's really eye-opening to kind of hear you talk about that. But I'd yeah. also like to hear about your experience. So, you know, we kind of like talk about prostitution and entry experience in it and then how, how someone is supposed to get out in the exit. Mm-hmm. What was your experience like while you were in prostitution in, in Vegas in that situation? And as we get into that question, uh, I just want to make it known to our listeners that we're just really going to be scratching the surface today in terms of the the deep well of knowledge and understanding and insight um, that Rebecca has on this whole larger issue of commercial sex industry, prostitution, sex trafficking. And so we just want to encourage you and direct you to her website um, where you, where she has resources that are available for training. Um, she's also, um, takes on speaking engagements. Um, and she has, she actually trains, um, 
law enforcement and, and, and groups, anti-trafficking groups around the nation and even in other countries. Um, Rebecca, what, how can people plug into your stream of consciousness, all the, the trainings and, and the resources that you've developed? Where, what's your website? Yeah, so it's RebeccaBender.org. Okay. They can go to our website. They can also, you know, sign up for a newsletter. They'll receive monthly um, insight about just kind of different tools that we have as we can constantly developing more content all the time to just help people, you know, get to that next level. At some point, I know we've got a lot of great listeners from your podcast. At some point, awareness is they've been doing awareness and they're ready to go a little deeper and they want to go to that next level. And so we're constantly bringing that 201, that 301, you know, not just a 101 anymore, but Mm -hmm. really helping get very specific for your profession, red flags, screening tools, uh, matrix, investigator checklists, you know, I mean, so many different um, tools that we really want to get professions so that they can. Amazing. Yeah. Learn about trafficking. So it's RebeccaBender.com. Is that dot org. Dot org. Dot org. Rebecca Bender. Rebecca Bender. Dot org. Dot org. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because sign up I for think, our newsletter, follow us on social media. We've got lots of different things that we put out all the time. I think your leadership is actually helping to pioneer the maturation of the anti-trafficking movement. You're bringing perspectives and understanding and insight, which is taking us to that next level of understanding, in in a way that you know I think very few other people are, and so. Um, we, yeah. So just for everyone who's listening to this, definitely want to encourage you, um, to please, uh, don't let this be, you know, just one podcast that you hear and move on. Um, go and dig deeper into the resources that Rebecca has uh, made available. And then you also have a, uh, gala coming up in April. Is that, can anybody go to that? Anybody can come. We would love for anyone to come. We're, we're going to definitely make it a night to celebrate the, the work um, that not only we've done, but different advocates. We've got a lot of awards we're giving out and a lot of different speakers that awesome. we would like to share about their work. So it's going to be in Phoenix, Arizona okay. on April April 29th. And you can also find out more on our website, RebeccaBender.org forward slash gala and um, buy great. tickets, get a table, bring a whole That's bunch great. of friends. You know, it's, It'll be in Phoenix, Arizona. So. So if anybody's in Phoenix um, or in the surrounding area, that would be a great way to connect with Rebecca and, and her ministry and learn more. I've I've really enjoyed going to the few galas that I have um, because like I remember going to one for Saving Innocence and I, I just got to digest so much of what they do in that one night. And it was a celebration of their work. And it was just this amazing event of being able to rub shoulders with so many other interesting and, and cool people. And then at the same time, fully digest what they're doing and then be able to partner with them. And so um, I think it's a great way for for people to get more involved with what we're, what you're doing. Um, but getting back to Lila's question, um, can, you know, so we've talked a little bit about entry into prostitution. and um, But then there's the experience of prostitution, like how a person experiences prostitution. And one of the... Uh, dimensions of what we're referring to as the cover narrative of the pro-sex movement is is the idea of the quote-unquote happy hooker. This idea that she's this sexual prowess. She's not a real person. She's a type. She's a subclass of human beings who was, in, in a sense, born to be this sexual provocateur who loves the advance of every 
man, no matter no matter his <laughs> fantasy or desire. And there's this whole notion that we've constructed of, you know, that and, and men justify this. I mean, I was just in a chat room today listening to a guy talk about his his uh uh you know passion for for paid sex and but just this delusion that oh you know for sure the women enjoy it love what they're doing and that's why they're there and all this and that um for you know so we know from your what you've shared that this is something that you were coerced and manipulated into would the sex buyers have known that i mean if a guy was coming you know, and, and pain to have you come to his hotel room or whatever, would he know that backstory or what would his impression be of, of your situation? Well, you know, I can tell you that most of the women, there was another girl that I was trafficked with for the, the longest amount of time. And her and I, when we were out on the streets together, we would make jokes about who would win an Emmy for the night. And the joke would be, you know, oh, that, like you pulled a good one on that dude. And and the, mm. the joke being that we're acting, you know, we're winning the, we're winning the award of a lifetime by, by pretending to be whatever fantasy is being purchased. And, and it's an actress, mm. it's an acting role. You're slapping a smile on your face, pretending to go through the motions and act sexy because that's what sells in America. You know, mm. women with duct tape, dirty mattresses and change is not what sells in America or Carl's Jr. would have a very different ad approach. So, right. I mean, the reality wow. is, right, sex sells. And so you wow. have to pretend to be that or you will not be purchased. And so wow. traffickers know that if you don't, you know, I mean, I just think for me, it almost seems naive to assume that that's right. It's like, I guess my whole premise being like sex sells so much in our country that we have to expect exactly the same with any industry and, and trafficking is no different and forced prostitution is no different. Um, you know, I say anywhere there's an opportunity for bad guys to make money, corruption will follow. And that's with anything we've seen, we've seen that, in, we've seen that way back in any day, biblical times even, right. Which that's why the, the priests were now having to sell new, uh, bowls down at the at the <laughs> down at the table because corruption follows anywhere there's an right. opportunity to make money corruption follows and now, okay just Vegas is no different well let me ask you this because um you know I when I when I first sat down with you that time and it, it's it's that day and then the very next day is when I interviewed Christina Rangel who has a very similar story to yours and it was it was a defining moment in my life and I look back on those two days and it was it was absolutely a turning point in my life and I went into that interview and when I sat down in that interview seat and looked across at you in my mind having made nefarious I you know having spent years traveling the world researching this I still had this idea in my head because of however deeply embedded and, and conditioned we are by just growing up in this culture, um, I still had this idea in my head that that trafficking cases were the anomaly. Mm. And, and, you know, so most people were in prostitution at some level willingly, which, of course, you know, we know the way that that is spun is that if, if a person's there willingly, then that justifies it. And then there's, you know, basically nothing to see there. And, and so we just kind of cover that up. We leave it out of our minds or, or whatever, or we participate in it, you know, in a worse, 
worst case scenario, men are, men use that idea to participate in it. But when I sat down with you and I was struggling to to wrap my mind around the idea of you being um, trafficked as a quote unquote high class escort, the next thing that really struck me was um, how prominent this was in terms of the proportion of girls in Las Vegas. Can you talk about that? Um, the way that the system of prostitution works in in Vegas and the proportion of girls who are actually uh, were in sim- situations similar to yours, under the control of a pimp, not making the money for themselves, um, brought into it through coercion and manipulation and that kind of thing. Can you help us understand that aspect of this? Yeah. So in Vegas, um, obviously everybody believes that prostitution is legal in Las Vegas, and it's not. It's, it is not legal in Clark County. It is legal in Pahrump County, which is two hours away from Las Vegas in a bunny ranch where they can monitor and collect taxes. But in the city of Las Vegas, prostitution is completely illegal. And girls go to jail all the time for solicitation. Vice sets up stings constantly to arrest uh, women involved in prostitution. Um, every night they bring in, you know, I don't know, 10 to 20 different women in a paddy wagon for for solicitation. And kind of how it works is, I think what's the most common is you do have a lot of escort services who also use an online internet site. Um, and then trafficked women and their traffickers will also use the online internet site without an escort service. And that's what's called independent. So oftentimes when you see an online ad and it says 100% independent, that's not referring to a trafficker at all. That's referring to an escort service. And the reason why they, they do that is because escort services take a fee. It's usually called a drop in, in, the, in, I don't know, in the life. We call it the drop. And so you have a $150 check-in fee. And then you start working off tips. So to just kind of walk you through a call, for example, a man would be in Las Vegas. He could either pick up one of those cards that someone's, you know, handing you on the street corner like that, or, or yeah. there's, um, and you go onto a website and you book a girl. And so what happens is the girl arrives in your room, oftentimes within 15 minutes of you booking a call. Um, and you actually, we're, we have to, we, meaning the trafficked victim or the woman involved in prostitution, has to arrive within 15 minutes or you receive a fine from the escort service. It's usually a $50 fine if you're late to a call because men are often shopping around. You're often not the only place they've called. And so in a sense, as soon as he starts making calls, you're on a countdown. And it's kind of like whatever girl gets there first is who he's going to end up keeping. And that's why escort services put a 15-minute clock on you um, Mm. because they don't want to lose calls. So clock starts, you get to the room, you usually, I mean, I'm just going to walk you through one, right? You usually yeah. call up like, hi, room 232, is Mr. Johnson there? This provides this very thin veil of security of like, that's why you call the hotel front desk and you don't call the man directly. You go through the front desk because it's your one veil to ensure that maybe if I get murdered, someone will know whose room I'm in, right? Wow. And so it's this wow. very bizarre sense of protection of like, well, I'm going to call the front desk and ask if Mr. If room two three one two two, you know, Bill Johnson, Brian Johnson, whatever the name is, I just use a general name. Don't mean don't mean to pick out any Bills or Brian's out there. But um, and 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 then if the front desk person is like, I'm sorry, there's nobody here by that name, then you're like, okay, that guy tried to give us a fake name. Or if they're like, oh yeah, no problem, one moment, please, and then the hotel room rings and he picks up, you say. 
Hi, Brian. This is whatever your fake name is, Evie, Sasha, Candy, Bambi, whatever. Hi, this is Eva. I'm downstairs. Um, I'm parking. I just wanted to make sure you in your room and ready for some company. And he's like, yep, come on up. So you go upstairs, you knock on the door, he lets you in. And right away you say, my service has sent a dancer to you. It's going to be $150 for up to an hour. And they usually go, oh, so I get sex for $150? And you say, no, honey, prostitution's illegal. I'm here as a dancer in your room. So I need to collect $150. But after that, the more you tip, the longer I stay, the more fun we have. Got it? And you smile and wink. And they go, so I get sex? And you go, baby, prostitution's illegal. The more fun you have, the more Mm. more you tip, the more fun we have. So you're Mm. constantly trying to avoid soliciting yourself in case it's a police officer. And the more the guy starts to press, the more you start to go, are you, you might be a cop, I'm out. But the Mm. more you go, honey, we're both smart adults here. This is Vegas. Like just pay the 150 and let's move on. Cause I don't want to keep talking about business. I want to have fun. And he's like, okay. So he pays the 150. You call your service and you say, I'm checking in. That means I'm going to stay. Usually they'll say, would you like me to call you in five? And you go, "Mm, maybe a little more. And that means I think this guy has more money and I'm going to stay more than 10 minutes. Okay. So then what this also does, it's that one additional veil of security so that if she calls in five minutes and I don't pick up my phone, she's calling security to the room. Mm -hmm. And that's how it's this very... It's a way to make you as the falsely empowered object feel Mm. a little bit safer from being raped or murdered because now somebody knows what room I'm in. And if I don't answer my phone in five, security will be here to hopefully stop him from strangling me. Right. And I I think that people don't quite understand that. Hmm. that. That's so powerful. It's interesting to note that, because of the nature of prostitution, you have to have all of these false veils of security uh, to protect yourself from murder and strangulation every single time you go out to to a call. I mean, that's, every time. Yeah, I mean, you're you're playing Russian roulette every time you knock on the door. No, every a, time. Now, a lot of people would you know hear this and they would say, "Okay, so that was her reality," but most of the people in Vegas. Are there willingly, they're there voluntarily, and they are, you know, taking home the big bucks, making money <laughs> the easy way. It's all I, those all those things. Um, <laughs> even even as you shared your story with me, that was what I thought. Yeah. And so can so what in your I feel like people who think that should also buy beachfront property in Arizona because <laughs> like it's what you're being sold and it's not anyone's personal right. like it's not the it's not that anyone is you know obviously Benji you're far from unintelligent it's that our culture has really fed through marketing and media and commercials and movies we've just been sold this really false idea of sex sells and you know, I've mm. met thousands of women. Well, near, you know, I was, it was almost six years that I was forced into high paid escorting by a trafficker who took every dollar and beat me on a consistent basis. And during that time, I met thousands of women there. And I can only recall two that I knew of that did not have a trafficker. And wow. one of them was brought there by a trafficker. 
And then she ran and decided she was going to do it without him because she knew how much money could pass through her hands. Wow. So really only one that came completely on her own. And, and so that's just, first of all, I mean, that's just, that's just, and both those girls are friends on my Facebook page right now. So I still know both of them and are in touch with both of them. (laughs) That's just mind blowing. And when you shared that with me, that's part of what shifted my whole way of seeing Las Vegas. And I remember this concept entered into my head, the slaves among us. And, Mm -hmm. and, and so when I went to Vegas the next time and I was looking over at the roulette table and walking through the casino and going into the restaurants and the bars, and you would see these girls who were clearly um, uh, in escorting, um, clearly in prostitution, you would see them. And previously, again, I had this idea that, you know, they were there as voluntarily. And then all of a sudden I realized I was like, whoa, like that girl is under the control of a trafficker. That girl is under the control. And but what was what was so kind of surreal about it was that, you know, she's she's standing next to the guy at the roulette table and everybody is having the appearance of fun all around her. And I'm I'm just watching this whole scene, almost like it was unfolding in slow motion. People laughing, throwing the dice, drinking, and if there's this there's this appearance that everybody's in on this. There's appearance, this appearance that this is all just fun. It's all part of entertainment. Um, and yet, this girl has a whole backstory, is under the control of somebody else. And nobody knows it. And nobody knows and understands what's going on. And I just felt so compelled when I heard your story to want to get that message out. And so we're actually making a documentary that revolves largely around your story and Christina's story. And um, so I think that that perspective is really important that you're sharing about how, but let me ask you this question. How is that possible? You know, I think (laughs) there's so many different ways. I think sensationalism has fueled misidentification in, in every city. I think the more advocates keep using images of duct taped, handcuffed women thrown in dirty mattresses on the corner. I think the more we as a culture keep really marketing the issue of human trafficking incorrectly, the more we'll keep looking past the real victims that walk amongst us. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, I'm, I, I hate to burst our advocacy bubble, but we've done a really poor job of that as a movement. Mm-hmm. We have marketed this issue really poorly. We keep using the duct taped, nine-year-old pigtail girl with a teddy bear in her arm. And Come that's on. not what we're seeing at the ru- rest, mm-hmm. at the roulette table. You know, like we're, we're painting the wrong images for the public. And we, we keep having our advocates out looking for something that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. We've got to get better at marketing like everybody else. It's, I think that we've done a poor job as a movement with that. That's, mm-hmm. I, I, I completely agree with you. And, um, that's, you know, us doing this podcast is our way of trying to help contribute to changing that image and to getting, you know, your voice and perspective and insight across because um, we've learned so much from you. Um, what is it about the system of, of prostitution in Vegas that allows it to operate like this spider web that so many, I mean, it's 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 really I mean it's mind blowing to think 
that the vast majority to the degree of 99% of the people who are in Vegas, because again, we're, we're supposed to think that prostitution is one thing and then trafficking is this very small minority, like you said, among nine-year-olds who are duct taped and thrown on a dirty mattress. Mm-hmm. We're not, we're not aware. We don't understand that cities like Las Vegas are composed of 99% trafficking cases, people who are under the control of a, of a trafficker or, or a pimp, which are basically the same thing, under the control, aren't making the money. And yet there's this appearance that it's high-class escorting. But let me ask mm-hmm. you this. How, how does the system of prostitution function and operate in, in Las Vegas that causes it to be this way? What are the role of the pimps and the traffickers? How does all of that go down that, well, like they, that? Every, everybody makes money. That's, that's why it all continues to be kind of pushed under the rug, kind of not noticed. You do just enough to be able to say we did something, but not enough to really make a difference. Um, you know, I, I can tell you as soon as someone walks, visits Las Vegas, especially a man by himself or even a, a couple, um, immediately the bellman, when he's bringing your suitcase up to your room, is going to ask you if you'd like some company tonight immediately because the bellman's going to get a 20% cut off anything that he makes. Um, wow. Immediately you start winning money down at the blackjack table. You're the casino host, so the pit boss, right, the guy in the middle that's watching all five tables He'll come over when he sees you winning a lot of money and say, would you like a beautiful girl on your arm, sir? I mean, everyone's mm. in on it. Everybody's in on it. Um, mm. You know, and, and traffickers, in a sense, traffickers end up using a variety of funding streams or, or in a sense, marketing streams to really keep making the most money. And so traffickers will put you for sale online. They'll also have you call on with an escort service that night. In between that, you'll be what's called freelancing. So you're walking the carpet instead of walking the track. And then in between all three of those, you're going to have some people in your pocket, like a bellman, a limo driver, a taxi driver, and a pit boss that all know you. And they know that you're going to make good money. And so you're their go-to girl when they have a guy that wants some company. Or they will push for a guy that wants some company because maybe it's Christmas or their kid's birthday or their tire went out. I mean... And so as you have all of these different revenue streams that a trafficker is tapping into, your girl is out working or your, your product now, your object, because, right, so so empowering to be an object, your right. objects are walking around with these multiple funding streams, and they're able to stay out from sundown to sunup and bring in thousands of dollars per girl. Mm. You got a stable of four women. I mean, it's it's insane to think about the high reward for the trafficker and the very low risk. Because then if this girl solicits one guy on the carpet, right, as she's walking around and he's an undercover cop, she just goes to jail for the night as for soliciting prostitution. She gets a slap on the wrist and a $250 ticket. She gets out the next day and her trafficker picks her up and takes her to get something to eat and says, let's go to the mall after you take a shower and I'm going to buy you a new outfit. Mm. And wow. he still, and as soon as she gets back to her car, she still has the two thousand dollars that she made before she got busted sitting in her glove box. Wow. So he's really not out a ton of money, right? 
Well, it's really, really eye-opening to hear you explain it like that, the economics of it, and, and to understand how this continues. And it's just if there's money to be made, there's people willing to exploit another person to make that money. I have a question. I know that, like you mentioned before, we have these images in our head um, promoted a lot by the anti-trafficking community of the woman in handcuffs um, behind bars. And we look at that woman in that picture and we say, well, she can't she can't walk away. She's a true trafficking victim. They look at someone perhaps in a situation like you might have been in in Vegas and other women in that um, particular situation and say, well, she why, she could just leave. Why doesn't she could just walk away if she wanted mm-hmm. to? Can you yeah. talk to us a little bit about that experience of exit and what you know what made it so hard for you not to quote unquote just walk away from that experience? Right. Yeah, I get this a lot, especially especially a lot from law enforcement. <laughs> Why don't you just run? I don't understand. And my response is a couple things. One is I did. Why do you think I'm here today? I did eventually run and eventually walk away. Two, you know, I think people are imagining that we're going to, you know, grab a grenade, bomb the Bellagio, jump out the window and run for freedom like Angelina Jolie did. It's like they have this movie scene (laughs) of how you should be able to get away. And it's like Mm -hmm. the reality is it doesn't doesn't work like that in real life. Um, You know, it doesn't. It takes a lot. I had a lot of attempted escapes before I was able to run. And, and you know, it's kind of the same theory of like, well, why, why didn't all of the Jews just walk away? Why did they get on the, con- why did they get on the trains and go to Auschwitz? Why didn't some of them just get away? Mm-hmm. They're like the, the brainwash and the propaganda of years of continual manipulation mentally, the Stockholm mm-hmm. syndrome, the capture bonding, the trauma bonding, the sleep deprivation, the rewards for cooperation, the social ostracism for non-cooperation. I mean, like people don't understand that brainwashing still exists. It didn't just go away in 1995, right? Like wow. it, the tactics are still very real. And, and to think that one man can't brainwash a young vulnerable girl, yet we know how one man was able to manipulate and brainwash the president of Germany to be you know, so that Hitler could become chancellor and then continue mm. to use that coercive tactic across nations of very smart grown adults. Mm. How did that happen? And it took a long time, right? I mean, it took 12 years for that to, to take place. And I mean, it's not really any different when you think about the mental chains, like, well, if I oh. do this, then I'm going to be heard or, I would go to the store and then my, or I'd go to one call at night and then suddenly my trafficker would be there when I came out, made me constantly think he's watching me. He knows where I am at all times. I'm not safe. Um, and then they purposely deprive you of food and sleep often, not all the times, but sometimes, which just causes your mind to be foggy. And it's just, it's so much that goes into it. I feel like people, it is hard for people to grasp and understand the brainwash because it's not as easy to see as a forceful kidnap. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so eye-opening um, to hear you just talk, walk us through your experience and help us, um, you know, because we've been talking 
uh, about these kinds of issues in our in our podcast for the last several months. But to hear it from you, a survivor, and mm-hmm. coming from your own experience, I feel like it yeah. just brings it all home, and it's just so powerful and eye opening. And I know yeah. we only have a, a couple more minutes. Um, and there's so much more we could dive into. And I love how you always say, like, you're so, you know, survivors are so much more than their story. And I know that you are so much more than your story as, you know, as powerful and and, 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 and eye-opening as that is. And so I guess, yeah, we should definitely encourage people to continue to dive into your resources and go to your website. And, you know, perhaps we can even have you back on. Um, mm-hmm. again uh, in the future. Thank you. I, yeah, I'd love that. Um, I mean, one other quick thing and, and then, uh, you know, whatever you want to do to close up. But one thing I would also just love to mention about the escape is, you know, I learned during my nearly six years involved in forced prostitution, I had four attempted escapes and I learned what to do better with every attempt. I learned where to, I learned where to hide clothes for next time. I learned that I couldn't buy a plane ticket with cash post 9-11 for next time because I got all the way to the airport and couldn't get on the flight. Mm-hmm. I learned that I had to call the school where my daughter was immediately and put him on a no pickup order for next time because without attempted escape, he ran first to get her. He didn't run first to get me. And so you learn, I think, throughout the years as you have tried to run what didn't work. And then you've suffered the brutal consequence of that. I learned that he knew where my, where my family lived in Oregon because that the time that I did get all the way home and he showed up to my family's, right? And so, like, you do try to run. And sometimes you get real far and sometimes you don't. But you, you get better and you get further. And, and sometimes, unfortunately, there are women that don't make it out. And, and then there are some of us that do. And I, I relay a lot of my, quote, unquote, success, in a sense, to being... Um, a survivor who had an amazing family that I got to run home to, that my mom was absolutely financially able to put a plane ticket on her credit card for me and my baby, that I had a good home that was willing to find support and services and stand beside me and, and be proud of me. And not every victim is so fortunate as that. And we got to remember that some of these young kids, especially 17, 18-year-old girls, that come from foster care, they don't have anybody to call, don't have anywhere to run to. It's just different. Not every situation is like a cookie cutter situation, you know? Right. Wow. Yeah. Super helpful. Super insightful. Um, do we have time for one last question? I, yeah, I don't know what do. your schedule is you looking do. like. Yeah. Okay. Um, let me just sneak this last question in before we end our time together. Um, so, and I, again, I, I want to just get back to this issue of, you know, the people's perception that a place like Las Vegas or whatever other city, but a place like Las Vegas is predominantly composed of the high class escorts who are doing this voluntarily. That whole notion of prostitution, which you've really helped us to <laughs> see that more clearly for, and see that for the for the deception that it is. Um, I had an experience where I was, uh, went out on a street outreach with, um, a couple of girls that were with, um, Annie Lobert's organization, Hookers for Jesus. And mm-hmm. as we were walking down the street, um, one of the girls looked up at a guy as we were passing by 
and and these two girls had been previously in prostitution, tra- were trafficked, and had come out of it. But this guy circled back around and spent the next 45 minutes trying to convince this girl that she was going to have to join his corral, that she was going to have to be one of his girls because she made eye contact with him. It was it was such a strange, bizarre, eye-opening experience. I mean, we literally had to spend 45 minutes convincing this guy that no, she's not going to become your sex slave. <laughs> and so this idea that somebody is, let's say, does have the bright idea that they're going to go and voluntarily make money the easy way working in Las Vegas and prostitution, which, you know, I mean, let's just say that the myth is true for just just for hypothetical reasons for, for a moment, that some girl's going to go do that. I mean, would that even be possible? Would it be possible for someone to actually go do that? <laughs> for her to go work independently in Vegas? Oh, um, I mean, it's very hard to work independently in Vegas for a number of reasons. And one, I mean, just circling back to the brain, the topic of brainwash is you're actually, you get socially ostracized if you're not connected with, with a pimp. And so pimps kind of have the market cornered where, you know, there would be times when, for example, you would go on a call and maybe the, the man inside would have two friends there and he would say, Hey, can you bring some friends? Um, can you call some girlfriends? And so, you know, I was required part of the rules of the game, quote unquote, part of the rules of the game are that you have to call one of your other, the girls in your stable, one of your wife-in-laws, only them. You cannot call anybody else. So that the money always stays within the quote unquote family. And so then if your wife-in-laws were unavailable, maybe they were on another call or whatever, they were out of town with a regular, then you could only call one of the pimp's friend's girls. It's called a homie's broad. I know that, you know, you call you have to call a homie's broad. So you call a homie's broad. And if she's not available, then you might be able to start, you know, asking him who you can call. But you are never, ever, ever to put money in a renegade's pocket. A renegade is a girl who doesn't have a pimp. And so, in a sense, renegades don't end up getting a lot of calls sometimes because they're they're completely pushed out of any of the circles. Um, even escort services, they'll encourage women to go make eye contact with another trafficker if they see that you're not being taken care of. I can remember one time pulling up to the service in, in my new car, and um, I had a black eye, and I probably had some bruises on my legs. And I remember a call girl saying to me, you should talk to Mimi. Mimi's man never hits her. Maybe you'd be like to be one of Mimi's wife-in-laws. Encouraging me to try to what's called choose up, make eye contact with her trafficker so that I could easily leave mine. And so I know it's hard for people to grasp and wrap their mind around these specific rules of this criminal organization, but it's a lot like gang members, right? You can't just leave a gang. You, you know, you can't be like, okay, guys, that was fun, but I'm really sorry now. The bloods, it's been great, but I got to go. It doesn't work like that. Right. You have to get, right? They call it getting jumped out. And so it's right. really a set of rules within a criminal industry that have to be abided by and followed. And so with the term called choosing up, which is oftentimes when you can make eye contact with another trafficker, it's really to try to get help from getting out of one gang and gaining the protection of another. So you can't just walk away, but you can switch between gangs. And so it's kind of like being in gangs. You can't just, you can't just walk away. You can get jumped out, but you're not just walking away. Well, in trafficking, you can choose up with different families, but you can't just walk away. 
And so sometimes when you're getting beat a lot or your child's being hurt or you're not being fed ever, you might go and look at another trafficker because that's your time that you might be able to get out of a really bad situation into another bad situation, but at least with like food. Mm. And traffickers will rely on that. And so they'll look at girls and like, oh, hey, mommy, you need a new car. I see you driving that old beat up Lexus. Look at me, bitch. Look at me, bitch. And then, I mean, it's like that all the time. Anywhere you walk in Vegas. So girls are Mm. constantly having to keep your eyes down so that you don't choose up with another family. That's what the term is called, choosing up, just like the term jumping out, right? I mean, it's the same implicit yet really insightful word choice that traffickers use when they write that, choosing up, right? Mm. (laughs) But anyway. There's this whole world, like it's like this whole other underworld that, you know, 99% of people just have no idea Mm. even exists. So thank you so much for helping us to gain insight into that. And um, so w- what I hear you saying is when, when, when I was walking down the street with this girl who was not in prostitution anymore, wh- what was happening there? What, when she looked at that, at that guy who happened to be a pimp, what, what was happening there that gave, that he felt like he had the license to claim her as his sexual slave? Yeah. I mean, if she made eye contact and he could, The thing is, is that we can tell, (laughs) you can often tell if someone's been in the life, you know, like you can tell. And he probably had spirit begets spirit. And he probably had this sense of like, oh, there's something familiar about her. It's not her personally, physically familiar. It's potentially a spirit that is familiar that's still with her. And so when he made eye contact and she made it back, that's the sign to go, Mm -hmm. oh, she's choosing up. Okay, I see you. You're in a bad spot with your other pimp, and now I'm going to try to step in and take you from him. You're wanting to switch gangs right now. When you make direct eye contact, that's the sign that I'm ready to switch gangs. And pimps jump on that because if she gets back to her home and her old pimp who's been treating her bad has roses and flowers and tickets to Disneyland for her and her kid, that new pimp she just made eye contact doesn't have a chance. So he's trying to get her to say yes before the end of the night. Before she gets back to go through a honeymoon phase, like you see in domestic violence. So I mean, it's it's complex, and I get it. Like it's layered. It's hard for us no, to turn around in a few but minutes. It's so but helpful. I, I was. You just realized what happened, right? Like you didn't know why yeah, the eye contact right. thing was. And yeah. Now you just that's, figured it out. It's so. And that's why they're crazy. in a rush. Because if you can get home back to your honeymoon phase with your domestic violence. Right? It's very much like gang affiliation meets domestic violence. Hmm. You throw in prostitution, you mix it up, and you got a cocktail of this new organized crime world called human trafficking. That's what it is. So wow. he's or trying to get her by the end of the industry night. in general, right? Right. Yeah. Totally. Okay. I mean, in Vegas specifically, yeah. we know out of 25 different types of human trafficking, pimp controlled is one of 25. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was so naive to these dynamics and I'm so thankful for your help and, um, you know, educating me and and helping me to understand the way this whole system of prostitution operates. Um, and I just, you know, I think it's, it's really important for, for, for our listeners and, um, and just for everyone out there to, to really wrap our minds around these realities, to really understand the, the, the true dynamics, the, the raw realities of what's happening. Um, it just so grieves my heart when I see 
articles coming out from people who, you know, are glamorizing prostitution, trying to normalize it um, uh, under, you know, the pretense of all these, these myths. Um, and, you know, and so Rebecca's testimony, her story is so powerful for us as listeners to grapple with, to wrestle with, and to really begin to digest an understanding of this system of prostitution according to mm-hmm. its true nature. And what I want, one thing I want to say is, uh, as we wrap our time up together, is um, that Rebecca is one of the leading voices um, in the anti-trafficking movement. I mentioned that at the front end. Um, she, it, some of you out there might have seen this video that recently went viral. Uh, it's a video of Ashton Kutcher testifying before Congress about trafficking, and he rattles off a list of, of five anti-trafficking organizations that are ones that he would recommend people to um, to check out and to be involved with. And Rebecca Bender's organization was one of those. So that, yeah. t- that so that tells you <laughs> that's an indication of the caliber Humbled. of person that we're that we're dealing with. And Rebecca, we just um, we reverence your you who you are. We um, are so grateful for your willingness to share about these things, for your passion, your leadership, um, your perseverance in this movement. And uh, so, thank you so much for coming on. Um, our podcast with us today. And uh, I think we need, to, <laughs> I don't know Lila, need, what like, you think, but I think yeah, we need we several need, more yeah. <laughs> sessions with you, Rebecca. <laughs> so anytime, much so anytime. This is just to. one I'm, aspect. Then you have the whole other aspect of, you know, what you teach and talk about, which is training the abolition movement and really, uh, well, yeah. And I mean, I'd love yeah. next time we'll have to get into what happened at the Super Bowl with some of the other 25 types. I mean, we got to do cantinas and oh. there were so many things that it's just, again, a different set of rules and a different, different face all within one city to have all these different types and just fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, I think especially for abolitionists, as we begin to get more aware and become more educated that, you know, we need to go deeper and and just better understand it so that we can attack it the right way. Mm -hmm. Feeling the presence of the cartels in Houston was chilling. And I I would definitely love to revisit that subject with you, maybe a future podcast and hear about your perspective on that. So we just are so grateful for your voice, Rebecca, for who you are. Um, we, we thank you and we uh, honor you. We bless you. Everything that you're doing, your family, your amazing husband. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you. And <laughs> just bless you with all of that. Uh, and be sure to check out Rebecca's website. That is, again, once again, for those of you who didn't hear, www.rebeccabender.org. And if you want to follow her on social media, um, it's her handle is at I'm Rebecca and that's I M the letter M Rebecca Rebecca Bender Rebecca I'm Bender Rebecca Bender I'm, I'm Rebecca, Rebecca Bender, Bender. Yeah. <laughs> got it <laughs> it's hard it's hard I know <laughs> good, Just good, my name. good 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 okay thank you guys well, so much for having me it's really my honor <laughs> absolutely we'll and talk soon thanks to everyone who's tuned in and yeah, we'll talk soon bye thanks for listening to our podcast. To learn more about how you can be involved, go to exoduscry.com and follow us on social media. If you have questions or comments, email us 
at feedback at exoduscry.com. We'd love to hear from you.